if you haven't gotten one yet, there's actually a, a Bible reading plan uh, that we have that we're all going through. They're on the info table uh, when you came in. You can grab one on the way out. And so over the next six weeks as we're in the series, if you want to read along throughout the week, uh, and you, that way you can be reading the passage and come uh, knowing which uh, passage we're going to be preaching out of that Sunday, you can follow along together. Uh, love for you to do that. Uh, Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. It's between the books of Proverbs and Song of Songs. So if you like look at the Bible about halfway open, like right at the halfway point, there's a good chance you'll find Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes is called wisdom literature. It's kind of a genre, so it's part poetry, and then it part reads sort of like a memoir of a man who spent his life searching for purpose and happiness. Uh, the author is probably King Solomon. Uh, there are some people who debate about that, um, but uh, I'm pretty certain it was Solomon. Uh, but he calls himself the preacher, and so that's how I'm going to refer to him uh, throughout this series as the preacher, because that's how he refers to himself. Your uh, your translation may say teacher, uh, preacher, but we're going to we're going to say preacher. Uh, and what he's doing is he's exploring the question. How do we find our purpose and happiness in what can often be a confusing and a painful world? That's what he's doing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, is exploring that question. Um, and he shares about his failed attempts in the past at finding the right answers, many of which are going to sound familiar. His experiences, even though he lived a couple of thousand years before us, are uh, strikingly similar to our experiences today. So I'm going to read the passage uh, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well, so if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, and I'm going to read it first in the English Standard Version, which is the version that I'm going to preach out of. But then I'm going to read it to you again in the New Living Translation, because it's a, I just think it'll be helpful for you to hear it in multiple translations. Uh, the New Living Translation is a, a more conversational, and so uh, I'm going to read this passage to first in the escape. Here's what the word of God says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down. And hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I was going to read this to you in the other translation, but it is not in my notes, so I'm not going to read it to you. It's on the screen. It's behind us. Okay, there we go. Okay. Right, so I'm going to read it to you in the new translation. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, 
who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all the hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again into the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually, it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. If we don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the wisdom in your word this morning. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit now and help me preach that. It's not my opinions, it's not my advice. There's nothing I can do to help a person, a single person in here. Father, only you can. Only you can, can give us hope. God, only you can give us true wisdom from above. And so I pray this morning you would do that. I pray that if there's anyone here that is struggling this morning, that's having doubts, that's, that's in pain, that Father, I pray in the name of Jesus this morning that they would find hope in your word. God, I pray that if there's anybody this morning that doesn't know you, that is not born again, that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, I pray that if there's anybody here right now who's walking in a way that's not pleasing to you, God, that this morning, uh, not that they would turn from their sin, that they would also understand just how gracious and merciful you are, and that you're willing to forgive them. God, I pray that you administer to each one of us this morning in a special way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I, I want to look at verses 2 and 3 uh, together. So look at verses 2 and 3 with me. And there's two phrases I want to draw your attention to that are very important, not just for this morning's text, but really for the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the first is the word vain. The word vain. In the New Living Translation, it was translated meaningless. Um, so the word vanity there in Hebrew, it literally means breath or vapor. So it's giving us the idea of something fleeting, something elusive. So think about uh, when you see your breath on a really cold day. You're, you're standing outside and you and you breathe and you see your breath and, and it's there for a little while and then it just it just vanishes. And, and it's referring to Solomon is referring to the sum total of life as vanity. So quite literally, he's saying that life is empty or void of meaning. And when you think about your breath on a cold day, it's, it, you can see it, but you can't really grasp it. It's not tangible. You can't contain it. And he says, that's what life under the sun is like. And that's that other phrase I want to point out, this phrase, under the sun. What he means when he says under the sun is he's, he's talking about the things that we can see, this world that we can see, the material world. So in verse 3, when the preacher asks, what does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun, he's asking, at the end of the day, what's the point of that? Like, at the end of the day, why are we even here? Why am I doing everything that I'm doing? Why am I really getting up and going to work? 
Why am I putting in so much effort? What's the point of all of this? Pastor Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, and he makes the point that we tend to find the purpose behind the small things in life while ignoring the purpose in the big things in life. We ignore this question when it comes to the big things. Uh, take this for example. If I told you um, that I want you to meet me at the National Mall in front of the World War II Memorial tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., what's the first thing you're going to ask me? Why? Why do you need me there? What, what's in it for me? Like, what's what's the purpose? What do you why, why do you need me there? Why can't you invite somebody else? What am I going to be doing when I'm there? What's the occasion for all of this, right? And uh, suppose my answer was, don't worry about it, just meet me there. You're going to go, well, I don't want to come if I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I need to know a purpose behind why you're asking me to come. And yet, when it comes to the big questions of life, about life as a whole, we tend to not really ask that question. We, we don't take a lot of time to ask at the end of the day and at the end of my life, what do I have to show for all of the effort that I've put into my career, my relationships, my reputation? We don't give that as much thought as we probably should. Even when we don't ignore the question, we often think about the answer in superficial ways. If I were to ask you, what's the purpose of your life, what would you say? Some may say, well, I want to leave the world a better place than it was when I got here. Maybe you'd say, I want to have a positive impact on humanity. If you have some truth, Sarah, you may say, I want to be happy. And you know what? None of those things are, are wrong. None of those things are bad. Every human being wants to make a difference and wants to be happy. Like, we all want that. We all want our lives to matter. We want purpose. We want to be happy. We want to be content. But the preacher challenges us to go a little bit deeper than merely making a difference in the world and being happy. The main point of these first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is, is this. If life under the sun is all that there is, then happiness and purpose will always be elusive things. If, if life under the sun, if what we can see is all that there is, then happiness and purpose will always be elusive things. It's like the carrot on the end of the stick, the proverbial carrot on the end of the stick. We'll always be chasing it and we'll never find the right. But what I pray that you'll see today is that this life is not all there is. The main point of my sermon, if I can sum it up in one sentence this morning, uh, is this. The truly wise person admits that life apart from Jesus is devoid of significance in him. I think that's what this text is driving at, and that's what I'm going to show you this morning. And to kind of parse this out, what I want to do is I'm going to show you from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I want us to look at the nature of life under the sun. In other words, why is life apart from Jesus devoid of significance and meaning? And then we're just going to talk briefly about how we got there and what difference Jesus makes. Okay? Why does Jesus make a difference? What does he do? Why, why is Jesus so special? So that's where we're going this morning. By the way, even if you already agree with that statement, that, that thesis statement, if you will, that the truly wise person admits that life apart from Jesus is devoid of significance and meaning. Maybe you'd say, I'm on board with that. I agree. 
I still want to urge you to listen carefully to God's word this morning. Because each of us is probably looking for significance and meaning in the wrong places more than we think we are. Okay? And so we ought to let the word of God examine us this morning. So let's jump in. On your sermon notes, the first point there is the tiring reality of life under the sun. The tiring reality of life under the sun is that you cannot change anything. So when we talk about life under the sun, the first aspect is that we cannot change anything. I watched again a couple of days ago the movie Groundhog Day, um, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day. It's with Bill Murray, and his character uh, plays a man, a, a weatherman, that keeps reliving February 3rd, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. And each day, as he wakes up, everything is, is exactly the same, and he can't escape this endless cycle. Everything is just the same every single day. So he tries all sorts of different things to make himself happy and to try to get out of it. So he tries pleasure, uh, he indulging in his fleshly desires, he tries romance, he even tries suicide in multiple different ways, he tries knowledge. Everything that he tries, nothing changes. Nothing makes a difference. Life is more similar to Groundhog Day than we would like to think. We tend to do the same things day in and day out, and not much changes. That's what the preacher is getting at in verses 4 to 9. Look at verse 4. He says, A generation comes, a generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, people are born and people die, but the earth keeps going on without us unfaced. We like to think that we're the main character in the story, and how is the show going to go on if the main character goes away? But it will. The earth will continue on without us when we die. He uses three analogies from nature to reinforce his point, reinforce his point in verses 5 to 7. First, he talks about the sun. He, he says that it seems like the sun is going somewhere, it rises, and then it sets, but then it just comes around full circle again every single day. 24-hour cycle, the same thing, over and over. And the wind, some days the wind's blowing north, some days it's blowing south. Seems like it's going somewhere, but really it's just a cyclical cycle. Then the ocean says the, the, the streams run into the ocean, but it's never full. Water continues to run into the ocean, but it never fills up. It just evaporates, goes back into the clouds, then it rains again, and flows back into the streams. Around and around we go. In other words, what he's trying to say is that despite our Herculean efforts, our generation is going to come and go, and the world will continue on without us. We are not really as in control as we think we are. We're actually quite small. Life under the sun is vanity because we work our tails off to make a paycheck, but the money gets spent. And we just have to wake up and do it all again the next day. It's weariness. The work never stops. The emails keep piling up. So do the dishes. So does the to-do list. We work at it and we work at it, but the work is endless and nothing seems to change. And the preacher wants us to stop and ask, what am I doing all of this for? When are we going to be finished? When will we arrive? The preacher also points out the tedious redundancy of life under the sun. The tedious redundancy of life under the sun. The world can't satisfy you. The world can't satisfy you. Look at verses 8 and 9. 
He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So when the preacher says that there's nothing new under the sun, he doesn't mean that there's nothing new ever invented. Of course, there are new things that are invented. He means that we'll never discover anything new that will end our pursuit of seeking to be satisfied. We, we, we're fascinated with novelty in our society. We, we want new experiences. We want new things. We're always on this endless search to try to find something that's going to scratch that itch that we seem to just wander around with our entire lives. And this is not just a struggle that non-believers have. Christians struggle with this too. We pretend that we're just one job promotion away from financial security and peace. We're one move to a new city away from being stress-free. We're one new relationship away from freedom from feeling trapped. We're one career change away from being respected and important. Or that if we just raise our kids well, or if we grow our, a big ministry, or find a way to help a lot of people in our lives, will have significance or purpose. But as the preacher says in verse 14, we're chasing the wind. We're chasing the wind. Life under the sun is vanity because no matter how much we obtain, we're never satisfied. Why? The human heart craves beauty and transcendence. Our hearts hunger for something that we can't quite put our finger on. And the pursuit is endless because we're looking in the wrong place. We will not find the glory that our hearts crave under the sun. We were made to know God, and only He can satisfy our longing for glory. St. Augustine once said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee. As he was praying. Everything under the sun is not here to satisfy us, but to point us to the one who will. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, I'll turn there. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens declare the glory of God. What that verse is saying is that, that everything under the sun is not put there by God so that we can look to that or to look to it for our satisfaction. It's all meant to point us to the one who can satisfy us. God did not give us relationships and nature and food and sex so that we would look to those things for contentment and purpose. He gave them to us so that they would point us to him. All of creation explains this is the creator who made you. You were made to worship the one who made all of these amazing things. But we've made these things ultimate. We've taken God's good gifts and made them into idols. And that's the essence of sin. We've rejected God and we've chosen lesser substitutes. And this has led to the third reason that life under the sun is meaningless apart from Jesus. The tragic result of life under the sun is that you will die. The tragic result of life under the sun is that you will die. 
In verse 11, listen to what the preacher says. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let me ask you a question. Can you remember the names of your great-grandparents? Maybe some of you can. Let me ask you this. Can you remember the name of your great-great-grandparents? Probably fewer of you can remember your great-great-grandparents. What about your great-great-great-grandparents? If we forget so soon our own flesh and blood, how much sooner are we going to be forgotten? really amazing, isn't it, when you think about it, that um, many of us can't even recall the names of our great-grandparents who were alive in the 1900s. That's not that long ago. Which means that our great-grandchildren may not remember our lives when we're adults. Now, some people may object to this. Well, not everybody's forgotten. What about Aristotle? What about Moses? What about Martin Luther King Jr.? We remember their names. They did great things. Yes, but my response to that would be, first of all, there are but a few people out of billions and billions that have lived on the earth. And secondly, they're not here to enjoy their posthumous notoriety. So we remember them, but it doesn't matter to them because they're not here to enjoy it. Death is the ultimate wet blanket of existence. It hangs over us, over our heads, like a, like a cloud. We've just gotten really good in recent years at hiding it from plain view. That's really a recent thing. Most of human history has been face to face with death, but we've been able to kind of hide it from view, and, and we don't have to, to see it anymore. And it's tucked away in uh, sterilized hospital rooms behind curtains where we don't have to see the painful things. Uh, there's a journalist named Jessica Mitford who did a study in. 1963, looking at the transformation of the funeral industry. And she published a, a, a report called The American Way of Death. And she noted this, how up until recent history, death was an accepted part of life. But in the past century or so, we've begun trying to scrub it from our vocabulary. And she pointed out uh, just the way that the funeral industry now, uh, the vocabulary they use. So think about this for example. It's no longer a funeral, but it's a service. The corpse is not a corpse or a body, but it's Mr. So-and-so, whoever the person is. Uh, we don't sign a death certificate anymore, but a vital statistics form. We, it's not a burial, it's an internment. Uh, and and the, the internment doesn't happen at the graveyard, but at the memorial park. And it's not orchestrated by an undertaker, but by a funeral director. Do you see how even in the language, we're, we're scrubbing it, we're polishing it so that we don't have to look at it because in reality, we don't really know how to deal with it. We want to avoid death so badly because it makes all of our activity under the sun meaningless. When the preacher asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If this life is all there is, then in light of death, the answer is nothing. We are going, death is going to take it all away at the end. All of our toil is like rearranging chairs on the deck of that Titanic. No matter what we do, that ship is going down, and we can't do anything about it. And everything that we've worked for, our reputation, our possessions, our careers, 
It's all going with it. I heard an analogy just the other day. It said, if, uh, if you're 21 years old, then it's 1130 in the morning. If you're 31 years old, then it's 1 p.m. If you're 41 years old, then it's 2.30 p.m. If you're 51 years old, then it's 4 p.m. If you're 61 years old, then it's 6 p.m. If you're 70 years old, then it's 9 p.m. If you're 80 years old, it's 11.30 p.m. The clock is striking midnight soon, as our life is a vapor. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. I understand why we live in a world where we try our best not to think about this. There's probably many of you who are uncomfortable right now as I talk about this. We move on, we get to the issues. We will. The reality of it is depressing. Because if this life is all there is, then what the preacher says in verse 2 is right. It's all vanity. In that case, the best thing to do probably would be to just distract ourselves and have as much fun as possible because, hey, we're dying soon, so why not? But this life is not all there is. And what we're actually doing is when, when, we, when we remove death from our memory and we just try not to think about it and stick our heads in the sand, we're putting band-aids on holes. Then when death comes, we're ill-equipped to deal with it. And we, we don't know how to handle it. So the answer is not to stick our heads in the sand and pretend death isn't real. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, demands that we acknowledge it and then ask the question, how did we get here? How did we get here? And the answer to that question is that sin brought the curse of death. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve decided they did not want to live under God's rule. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be like God. We've all done the same thing. Isaiah chapter 53 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each of us turned to his own way. That's what sin is. We're telling God, I don't want to follow your your way anymore. I want to go by I want to be in charge. I don't want to do things the way that you would have me do. I want to go my own way. All of us have done that to one degree or another. And we do it because we think that by going our own way, we're going to find more pleasure, more security somewhere else. But it's a fool's end. We're buying the lie of the serpent. Genesis 3 goes on to tell us the result of our own. The woman would have pain for childbearing. The man would work the ground in frustration. The ground would, would bear thorns and thistles. In other words, futility. Vanity. But the most tragic consequence of sin is the curse of death. And death is so tragic because it's so final. It steals everything good. And there's a reason that bothers us. It's supposed to bother us. You know why it bothers us? It's because death is a disruption into God's creative work. I want to read to you Matthew McCullough wrote a book, Remember Death, that I highly recommend you pick up. I think every single person should read this book, Remember Death, by Matthew McCullough. And here's what he says about death. He says, death is not the natural end to a merely biological life. Death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the Creator, designed by that same Creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. It exposes our foolish confidence and our freedom to be whoever we want to be. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, it's like this. It says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That word futility is the same Greek word as the word vanity in Ecclesiastes. So he's saying, the creation, God has subjected the creation to this, to this existence of vanity, this futility. But it says that he has subjected the world to futility in hope, which means that death is not the end of the story. There's hope beyond death. There's a future hope where creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption, set free from this endless cycle of futility and vanity. And this is where Jesus comes in and makes all the difference. What difference does Jesus make? God loves us so much that even though he would have been just to leave us to the consequences of our sin, he entered into our futility. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He hungered and he thirsted. He was tempted. He suffered. And though he was innocent and perfect, he died a criminal's death on the cross as the substitute in our place. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 puts it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Person is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus can make a difference because Jesus can change you. Jesus can change you. Most people think that the essence of Christianity is that we need to better ourselves and try to do enough good so that God will let us into heaven when we get to the permanence. That is not the gospel. That's not good news, and it will not work. If that were true, then Jesus died for no purpose, because then it's up to us to make our way to heaven. No, Jesus died on the cross for you, because it is impossible for you to make yourself righteous. You cannot do it. You need two things. You need for your debt for your sin to be paid, and you need to be changed, transformed from the inside out, which are two things that you're unable to do. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. His death pays your debt so that you are forgiven and clean. And then when we place our faith in him, we are born again. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to live transformed lives. Are you tired of working and working and working with nothing ever changing? Are you tired of the rat race? Oh, our city needs to hear this word. Washington, D.C. needs this word. We are in such a highly competitive city. People work so hard. People are trying, scratching and clawing their way to the top. Are you tired of that? Are you tired of competing with others and trying to keep up with this polished, filtered Instagram image of yourself when you know it isn't real? You can find rest in Jesus this morning. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You can have that rest this morning. 
All you need to do is acknowledge that you've sinned, that you've fallen short of God's righteousness, believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, and call out to him to save you and change you. You can be saved this morning. You can be free from this endless cycle of trying to find your way to the top. But it gets better because not only does Jesus change us, but Jesus can also make a difference in us because Jesus can resurrect you. Jesus can resurrect you. Death is the great foe of mankind. And for all of our talk of progress, we talk a lot about progress in human race, but we can't conquer death. All we can do is try and try to live it. The, the reality of death should clearly point us to the reality that we need a rescue. Amen. And Jesus is that rescue. Not only did he die for us, but he rose from the dead. He defeated death for us. And because Jesus is risen, he will also raise to eternal life all who have trusted in him. So that means that as believers, we don't have to deny death's reality. We don't have to stick our heads in the sand and pretend that it isn't real. I'm not suggesting, nor is the Bible suggesting, that believers ought to shrug our shoulders at death. We can look at it and we can see it for what it is. It's an evil reality, but it's also a vanquished foe. Even Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. So just because we believe that we're going to live forever doesn't mean that somehow death shouldn't affect us and we should just say, that's no big deal. No, it still is a big deal and it's still a horrible thing. But we don't have to weep as those who have no hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. We're still in a broken world until Jesus returns. That's why we pray, come quickly for Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says that we groan inwardly as we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the guarantee. In other words, it means that because Jesus rose from the dead, it's the down payment that we also are going to be raised from the dead upon his return along with him. Jesus said in John 14, 19, he said, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So though there's sorrow now, we don't have to do is those who have no hope. The third difference that Jesus can make is that Jesus can satisfy you. Jesus can satisfy you. Earlier I said we were made to know God, and only He could satisfy our longing for glory. Jesus died for us to reconcile us back into a relationship with God. That's why you were created. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you are saved, that's why he's saved. Well, whether you're a Christian or not, if you've been tirelessly searching for satisfaction in success, in relationships, or sex, or anything else, just going from one thing to the next to the next, I want you to know that your weary search can stop this morning. Amen. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amidst all the New Year's resolutions, ask yourself, what will happen if I achieve every one of them? Will I be happy? 
If I achieve every single one of my goals, every single one of my New Year's resolutions, then what? Aren't I just going to want to make more next year? Will I ever really be satisfied? I'm not saying it's wrong to happen. I hope you do. I have to. You can and you should. But your primary resolution should be to seek God. Because if you don't do that, then none of the rest of them are going to happen. It's all man. You'll find that even if you do achieve them, it's not going to be enough. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. If you want to invest in a resolution that matters, then resolve to seek God in 2020. Make it your aim this year to get into something. Walk with somebody. Move beyond the superficial engagement with the church and get involved. Get into community with other brothers and sisters who are going to sharpen you and help you learn. If, if you want to do that, you can indicate that on a connect card and put that in the, the info table. Whenever you're walking back out, you can put on the back of that connect card. I'm interested in discipleship. I'm interested in small groups. Take that next step to get plugged in. Hey, this Wednesday night, we're having a night of prayer and worship. That's a great first step for you. To come and join us at 7 o'clock, right over there, 800 May Avenue. That move beyond just coming on Sunday mornings. You also make it your aim this year to read the Bible. Seek God by engaging Scripture, engaging in His Word. Pick up a Bible reading plan. If you don't have one yet, at the end of the day, in the back. Psalm chapter 19, verse 10 says that God's Word is more desirable than gold, and sweeter than honey from a honeycomb. You might hear that and you go, that seems a little bit of an exaggeration. But if everything that we just heard is true, then it's actually not an exaggeration. Because if, if everything else is vanity, if we were made to know God and to be satisfied in Him, then that means His Word, where He speaks to us, there, there could be nothing more satisfying. There could be nothing more, uh, more, tre- more treasurable. There could be nothing sweeter than God's Word. So make it your resolution this year to get into the Word of God. The truly wise person admits that life apart from Jesus is devoid of significance and meaning. The preacher is right. If this life is all there is, then all is vanity. We can't change anything. We can't find satisfaction, and we can't defeat death. But praise God, Jesus changes all of that. Amen. Apart from Jesus, we can't change anything to be satisfied with anything. I'm going to ask you to respond this morning with a time of prayer. And so I'm going to ask the worship team uh, to come out. Um, and I'm going to ask Carrie to begin a prayer plan. Um, and as Carrie's playing, and as we're praying, uh, I just want to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want us to spend some time uh, just responding to God in prayer. So first of all, for those of you who would say, you'd say, well, I've been, I've been chasing after the wind, Jerry. I've been running from God, looking to fill my life with other things, and I know that it's time for me to repent in the trust in Jesus. I know I'm not going to find the satisfaction I've been looking for in this world, and I know that I need to get right with God. All you need to do during this time of prayer that we're going to have on the is just confess that to God. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, maybe you'd say, hey, I'm already a follower of Jesus, but um, 
But during our time of prayer, what I want you to do is, is I want you to pray and think about maybe, maybe there's been an area of your life where you realize, you know what, I've been looking to this or that for significance or meaning or pleasure instead of Jesus. I've been running after the wrong things and I need to get back on track. And so what I want you to do is just pray this simple prayer, just this fill in the blank. Lord, forgive me for trying to live to a blank instead of you. 